We're glad you're here this morning. I'd like to start uh, preparing our hearts in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for the opportunity to gather this morning. We're thankful that we can. Thankful for the time. Thankful for a place to gather. Thankful that it's sheltered, covered. We have a big, fat, awesome book in our laps that's so full of realities about you that we can stop down every week and engage you and enjoy you and walk with you and journey with you and marvel at you wonder that you should be mindful of us. Lord, I pray this morning as this people gathers under shelter that we are gathered in you, that we are kept in your name. I pray that the people that are gathered here this morning see this time that we're going to spend together corporately and time that we spend in the word as nourishment and food and air. Lord, I pray that you will guard this people from just getting our church on and just getting a check in the block and moving on with our life and our plan, but that we can be shaped and directed and defined by these times that we spend together each week. Or we marvel at the sweet privilege, too, of singing back the greatness that you are these realities of the gospel, realities of your character, these realities of our dire condition and the beauty of grace reaching so low to grab the likes of us. Lord, I pray this morning that our hearts are tender, our ears are attentive, our eyes are wide open. pray that we have come to dine. It would be so clear that you are speaking to this people that you'll be glorified in the next hour or so, hour and a half that we spend together. We're grateful, Lord. We love you. We turn this sweet time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, I think this is going to be harder than speaking this morning to get my thoughts together. Um, I'm really proud of for his path and how he shared and seen him grow over the years. And... uh, it's just amazing to see him grow in this. And so I'm just going to ask, you know, has he basically recognized that Jesus is his Lord and Savior and has come to the point where you've asked him for the repent, uh, forgiveness of your sins? Have you done that? Yes. Yeah. And do you believe in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and the fact that they've drawn you to a place where you know you have eternal life? Yes. Yes, okay. Good. So with the authority in the name of the Father... And that's found in his bride, the church. I'm going to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thinking through Romans 6 where it says this. That we are buried with Christ and raised to new life in Jesus Christ. Amen. We've been here the past uh, seven months with... Crosspoint. One of the reasons we're here is that uh, there comes a time when you're working overseas, it's always good to come back and refresh. And some of the message is going to be about that. And I just want to first give an extreme thanks 
to all the elders, the deacons, and the folks who have helped us out um, with the home that we've been in and the provision and everything else. As you can imagine what it's like to try to live in two homes. Uh, when we came here, we didn't have furniture and dishes and all those things, and God's provision has just been excellent all that. So thank you very much. Before I start, let, let's uh, pray. I love, um, one of the things I love about this church is how we pray for the other pastors and the other ministries that are in Hunt County and in Texas. Father, thank you so much first for this people that are actively involved in the idea of sending and how we are intricately tied to this body and how there, there are just joys and things that are just unimaginable of how you have resourced this work as they're over there right now, um, living, working in an environment that at times can be harsh, both in climate, um, but also in the climate of, of trying to share faith. So, Father, thank you for opportunities that you've given them, for the divine appointments that you're bringing them, for the church that is meeting there, and for the gospel that's being proclaimed in the villages around the city that they live in. Also, Father, looking forward, we pray for the teams that will be going out and how people are leaving and going in this short-term calling to live and serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, first, I want to address some issues of, of how we were sent. Um, a lot of people wonder about the definition of calling and commission and what all those things mean. And um, I thought I would share a few things. As I started to think about that, I realized that along the road, the past 12 years that we've been overseas, we've hit some bumps and bruises, and I began to wonder why, and I started to look in Acts to see how Paul was sent. You know, what happened between the time that he accepted Christ, or, well, he didn't have much of a choice, did he? And the time he was sent. Because what I've seen in the past is there are things that we do that are very well, and then there are things that we do that may not be so well, but we grow in it. And, and through God's providence, we mature and actually enter, enter into what I would call a, a mature expression of sending. We met in an average environment, average church, average sending, and hear this, average calling, in that when we came to the point where we thought that we were called, we walked an aisle and we said, I'm called. Now, hear what I'm saying there, average, average, average. And the reason I'm saying average is this. A lot of times we will interpret the right thing through a cultural lens. And at that time in our Baptist culture, that's how you did it. But when we look at Scripture, we might see that there's a normal definition. What is the normal thing? How do we approach ministry the normal way? And what, I would say, what I'm going to show, hopefully, is that there was a disparity between this idea of average sending and going, cultural, and the idea of scriptural sending and going, biblical. And that's why I called this no deposit, no return. Because in our first expression with our church in Virginia that sent us out when we first went over to Cyprus, kind of modeled Paul there, and then we went to Turkey, yeah, we're still on a roll, and then we went to Germany. Paul never really got there. What we saw was this. Our sending was not full. 
In fact, I would even say that in a way we were unsent. We were going unsent. And we saw the fruit of that. For example, when we were over there, we felt alone. In a way, we felt cut off. And there was so lack of connectiveness and communication between us and the local church that even after our pastor had retired, our church actually went so far away from mission and evangelism that they were no longer even Southern Baptist in a part of what we were doing. And we had to leave the church. Now, there's a reason I'm telling you that. Because, see, this is how we came here. Because as that was happening, there was something else going on over here in God's field where I meet a joker named Brad Cardwell through IGO. And then the next year, Ben and Brad come to Germany. And then the next year, we get the McGraws and the Moody's and the Flowers walking with our family in a park. And I'm like, wait a minute. Isn't this the way it's supposed to look? Where we're walking together. And that's when I first started to desire accountability from Ben and Brad. And years before we joined the church, I was coming to these guys saying, hey, am I doing the right thing? And that's why I want you guys to see this, this definition of unsentedness. Unsent is that we're not, there was no connection. There was no accountability. And how could we move into a connected, accountable relationship with the bride so that we can actually see that happen where we are in the same way where we're not alone and we're connected? In 2006, there came a tipping point to that where we were moving to the Middle East. And it truly was a situation where I had a piece about that. But I'll tell you this, that as we went, we began to discover some things that in our lives that were, were not quite up to snuff. And that started to build over time. And so we came to a point here where I want to share with you that there's no way that we could express what it meant to be fully sent and what it meant to be fully part of the body because we couldn't accomplish what we're doing over there without that. Why don't you open up your scripture to Acts? And we're going to read three different segments of scripture. We're going to start in Acts 9. Before we read, I'm going to explain something, why this kind of jumps. First of all, Acts is much like a story. It's, it's episodic, and it's a history. And so sometimes if we want to look at what's going on with Paul, we have to skip over what's going on with Peter. And so as we read through, you're going to notice that we're going to skip two main areas of Scripture as we read through. We're going to look at what is happening to Paul personally, but really not what Paul is doing in his missionary journey. There are a lot of sermons on his missionary journey, but we're going to focus on what's happening to Paul and how he approaches the church in that interaction. The other thing is we're not going to look a lot of what's going on with Peter or with Herod or any other players. So for clarity, I've picked out these three passages of Scripture, and we're going to read them all together right now. We're going to start with Acts 9 in the second part of verse 19, and we're going to read through to 30. It says, and for some days, Paul, he was with the disciples in Damascus. 
in verse 20. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He's the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. And they said this, Is, it not, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? Who made havoc of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him out through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him because they didn't really believe he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, that is the Greeks. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee. I'm sorry, that's verse 30. So let's stop there. And now we're going to skip to chapter 11, verse 19. Now keep in mind, Paul, he's in Tarsus now. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand, was on, and the hand of the Lord was on them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them, he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord and with a steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Paul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people in Antioch. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. That's where you first see that term. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over the world. And by the world here, they're referring to Judea. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The next section will be 1225 through 133. So Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, who is also named Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius the Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, 
and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for, for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So that's a quick slice of Paul's life from conversion until they say, now it's time to storm the castle. And so they're sending them off. Looking at Paul's first section here, right after his conversion, one of the things I want to point out as, as we go through, you might want to turn back to chapter 9 now because we're going to look through some verse-by-verse verse stuff, is that there's a lot of time that occurs between these verses. You'll see things like, for 10 years, or after a few days, or for some time. And so as we go through this, I'm going to point that out as we go through the sermon. I hope you don't mind the repetition of the phrase, time marches on, because that's what I'll use to mark that as we go through. So 19, back at the beginning. For some days, he was with the disciples in Damascus. So even when he has his conversion experience... And he was being strengthened, and he had taken food. There's a long period of time. And Paul was not only being strengthened in his body, but I'm sure that he was being strengthened under the fellowship of the people that were around him. You know, Ananias was the first to meet with him and get him going. And think about what a massive mind shift that Paul's in, where he's switching from this worldview of being the best persecutor of Christ to the one where actually he's now the defender. It would be almost like rent money being the prosecutor in a court, and then in the middle of the, the whole thing, he switches over in the defender, right, in the middle of the whole proceeding. It's a massive shift. It's not a gentle shift. And so a lot of time passes. Paul is under that fellowship, and he's learning from these guys. But then it says, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying he's the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed, and they said, is this this guy? Who's been persecuting us? What is going on here? Wasn't this the one that bound these people up? And then time passes on because Paul increases all the more in strength and he confounded the Jews that lived in Damascus and he kept proving. And the interesting thing here for me is this. A lot of times we think, man, I don't know a lot in the Lord. I just started out with this. And so I can't share the gospel. I don't know how to proclaim. But the thing here that is really impacting some of the work and what's going on from my mind is Paul doesn't even think twice about sharing what Christ did from him, even from this early point. He is out there sharing, evangelizing, proclaiming. Now, given he might not be doing it smoothly. In fact, we're going to see that he doesn't do it smoothly. And he does much later on. But he is out there doing that. And he's walking in that immature obedience that God first gives him. He is in that space of growing in Christ. And he hasn't come into the fullness of his calling because that doesn't happen until many chapters later. But he doesn't wait for that. Because his first step of obedience was share. And I'm wondering, how does that affect us in the same way? As we're going, are we sharing the same way? One of the things when I referred to average calling when Pam and I were coming through was that one of these average ideas of being in church is that evangelism is bringing people to hear Ben speak. 
See, that's average. That's not biblical. Biblical is, sure, come into the church and worship, but it's a both and. And as you are going in the tire shop, Mr. Willingham, or out on the construction site, Mr. Ott, wherever you are, yeah, as we're going, we share. And the cool thing is I've seen men in this body do that. It's just been an amazing thing to me. In fact, I think a, a church plan of Crosspoint is actually at the discount wheel and tire over there. Because it's as you're going. And those are the things that's happening with Paul. He's doing that. He's taking it where he is. And then time marches on. So Saul increases, but there's a problem. And so basically many days pass, and these Jews are plotting to kill him, and the plot becomes known, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him out through a basket. Here's the interesting thing. Paul, the great preacher, and, and there's, there's an interesting thing here with Paul's teaching. He was a prideful sucker. He was. He was born in a university city, Tarsus. His parents were of means. Remember, he's both a citizen. He's a citizen of Rome. And they send him down to the best school in Jerusalem. And he says in other places in Scripture, even among my contemporaries, I was the best. He wasn't afraid to tell you. Here's my humility award. I want to show it to you. You know, he was just, he was right there in front of everybody. And then here he is now preaching Christ and being lowered out of a basket. I mean, how demeaning is that? You know, being, yeah, yeah, we just got to get you out of here. And through the side of the wall. And you know, that's a picture back to the Old Testament that we see. And whose house was used in that but a prostitute's house there's a, there's a lowliness and a humility that came even from Paul getting in that basket as he's being lowered out and he escapes from this in the scripture in Corinthians that there's another thing that was going on here remember I said time passes and time passes well in between this time here in these verses Paul actually goes down to Arabia like down to Jordan and that kingdom of Arabia, the Nabataeans, actually came almost all the way up to, to Damascus. So what is, he went south into the desert. And some people say he went there to go into seclusion, which may have been the case at first. But actually did a little rabble-rousing as well because he couldn't shut up about Jesus. And it says that this whole army of this king, this Nabataean king, chased him back up to Damascus. They didn't have title on Damascus, but they laid siege to the city and watched the gates day and night. See, and that's what was happening here is that he got chased back. He runs back to the first group he had for protection, and this whole army was chasing him. They were trying to lay hold of him. And again, so in Damascus, a lot of kind of raw sharing, a little bit of chaos. We got the basket. He's let out. Chaos in Arabia comes back, and now he goes where? To Jerusalem. He goes to that next haven. I'm going to go see the disciples. In fact, he's probably thinking... I need to go let those jokers know that I'm a believer now, so I'm going to show them what for. And Paul comes in really high into Jerusalem. He's ready to show them really what evangelism is. But when he arrives, what reception does he get? It's like, mm, I don't know about this guy. And it takes a while, and many days pass, and finally Barnabas finds him. And he kind of gets in on that. But what does he do? He runs off again in a wild way and starts preaching to these Hellenists, and chaos ensues again. So what we're seeing is this chain 
of chaos, chaos, chaos. Again, doing things in Jesus' name doesn't necessarily always mean it's right. He's trying his best with what he knows, and yet chaos ensues. And so they get to this point where the church in Jerusalem does something kind of funny to me. And it says this. Oh, I hope I can find the verse since I've been looking at Verse 26 through 30. Okay, it says this in verse 29. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Um, Paul, I think I hear your mom calling you. You need to go home. You know, we used to do that. You know, if somebody was bothering us in the neighborhood. Uh, Jimmy, Jimmy, I hear your mom calling. You, you need to kind of take off. You're, what we're really saying is, Jimmy, you're creating trouble. And we want a little peace here. Now, I'd never saw that before. And here, I'm not trying to demean Paul. But look at the very next verse. The very next verse says, in verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace <laughs> and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and it multiplied. Now, Paul, um, yeah, that's a little over the top. Why don't you kind of go for a little sabbatical here? And we're going to put you in a place where they really don't know you. And so you can calm down a little bit and think about what's going on. And so really the church doesn't even send him. It's a direction. In a way, it's almost a church discipline. Um, we need to get you out of here. Because this isn't bringing peace. It's bringing a little bit of chaos. And so from conversion to this point, what we're seeing is this. Paul is trying to serve. Don't hear me wrong. And Paul is proclaiming. But what we're seeing is that the way by which he's being called is chaos, chaos, chaos. And he's running, and he's running, and he's running. And here's another interesting distinction up until this point. And we're going to see a change. Paul is alone. He's by himself. He's not with anybody else. He doesn't have a partner, and he doesn't have a church. He's running around doing what he thinks God is calling him to do. You guys catch that? He is trying, and I'm not even going on his intentions, but what we're seeing is that the fruit of his actions are, I know what I'm doing, I'm the guy that's got the goods on the Old Testament, Jesus met me on the road, he even says in Galatians, you know, I didn't hear it from man, and yet, for some reason, it wasn't quite making it, and so he gets put over here for a while, and time passes on. I was talking to Brad last night. A little, I needed a little bit of uh, help on the sermon, not from an elder point of view, from a cowboy point of view. We're in Hunt County after all. Because I was thinking of Paul with this analogy. Paul's like a colt. He's like a young and disciplined colt. And so you got this young horse who has no discipline and plenty of strength. And if Brad had taken that young colt out to try to do his calf open without the discipline, there's chaos and maybe even damage. But if the colt 
puts himself under and first of all, admits his position, I'm the horse, not the rider, and then submits to that discipline, then all of a sudden, when the colt and rider are going chasing after the calf and that calf room goes on, here's the interesting thing. We don't really look at the horse. We're looking at the rider and he's roping. and said, look what that guy did. But it was the strength of the horse combined with the direction of the rider. See, this is what was going on with Paul. He was this young colt, and on the road to Damascus, he got that bit put in his mouth. But he was tromping down on that thing and just kind of, no, I'm, uh, Brad, I don't care what you say, I'm going left. And he's pulling it over this way. And that's what was happening in this time of this undisciplined sending, this unscentedness, where he's going alone and it's undisciplined. And so what happens is wherever he goes, he goes alone. Wherever he goes, chaos occurs. Wherever he goes, he needs to be bailed out. And so he probably enters into Tarsus wondering, God, man, I, I thought I was serving you. I was doing all these things in your name. What's going on here? What in the world is going on? Now, see, I want to draw a connection to this to what I shared with you earlier about Pam and I. You see, from 97 up until two years ago, that's a lot of the way I was leading overseas. You see, the situation I was in and that average sending through the average Baptist church that was more cultural than biblical is that we were kind of sent out alone and it's like, go save the world before bedtime. Have a nice day. There you go. And so I will tell you that I've been in places where chaos has occurred. Brad, amen? Yeah, okay. Brad can attest to this. I've been in places where I needed to be bailed out, right, Ben? Yeah. That was a little too loud. <laughs> and see, I'm drawing the analogy that this isn't just about Paul. This is about that journey as you're growing from this immaturity to a maturing of sending. And the neat thing is that we finally found a place here where we see those tipping points and those turning points coming to pass as this people begins to engage local and global together, and all of those things. And we're on that walk. You know, in order to fully share that, and before I go to this next section, I want to share a few things with you that are pretty close to my heart. And, and this is fairly personal. When we came in in June, July, you guys remember we were at Falls Creek and doing all that stuff. And I just mean all that stuff. And what I want to tell you, I came in just like Paul came in Jerusalem. I came in high. Hey, all you disciples, I got the goods. Look at us. I want you to hear that. But there was a problem in that I had wreckage in the street just like Paul did. I had chaos. And once things calmed down from Oklahoma, and once I settled down and actually sat under these men here, an interesting thing happened is that when you sit under men like this in a church like this for this long, all of a sudden people begin to see clearly what's going on in your life, and sometimes it's not pretty, and they see the wreckage. And I'll tell you that that did happen to us. There were things 
that were in our lives that were not above reproach. And I had four men telling me that. That wasn't easy. That hurt. And there were things that I've even taught other people and other kids through IGO. And then I'm looking back in the mirror saying, I'm not even listening to the teaching of the Holy Spirit that's given to my mouth. And I could tell you that I was walking in disobedience. And so for September and October, I kid you not, you know, some of you see me at the tire store. Really what was happening is that uh, Jeff Willenhan had handcuffed my legs to the chair there. That's teasing. But there wasn't accountability. And what I'm telling you is I was actually working there for a purpose. And I had godly men come around me to help me pull all of that life into obedience. I had a, a brother and a shepherd in Brad. I had a shepherd and a proclaimer and a truth speaker in Ben. I mean, I had Scott and Steve over here speaking into things, and Scott said things that I think he should have been a little older to tell me. <laughs> but they were true. Hear that. They, they were true, Timothy. They were true. And then I had men like Morris and, and Jeff who helped me with things in the areas of, of my life and my marriage and my kids and my business. And what I'm telling you this, I want you to hear clearly. If we didn't have this time here, then the next four years, our work would have ended over there. We would have been done. We would have been taken out, either by the enemy or whomever else was in authority. And yet, I could tell you now that as we go back, we're going back in fullness and enjoy. We're, we're worshiping. And that's the amazing thing for me. Now, I'm telling you that specifically from a heart to show you that Paul did the same. He learned in this next section how to take his teeth off that bit and take some direction. And the irony is that when that happens and we let go of some pride and we come in low, all of a sudden God's glorified and people worship. And all of a sudden it's not about Paul. We're not the man anymore. Christ is. And we see him up in front. And that's what people see. And I want you to know that that's an incredible gift of preaching the word every morning right here. That's what you guys have here, and that's so amazing to me. And that's the thing I want to tell you in even covenant. That's what we're taking over there. And those are the things that we're going back with at the same time. Let's look at how Paul deals with this. Move to Acts eleven nineteen. Okay, remember, time marches on. Time is moving. This is not the next week. Now, there were those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. You guys remember Stephen because that came up this fall where he preached and then he was gone and he had the face of an angel. But as a result of that event, it, that persecution caused another dispersion and these guys go out and the neat thing about the dispersion, they were really running from something. They started to run to something because they're sharing as they go. And it's almost like this mobile church went over here and over here and over here, and one of them lands in Antioch. 
And in verse 20, it says this, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, and, uh, who were coming to Antioch and spoke to the Hellenist also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And time passes on. So that ministry is growing. But then, after time, the headquarters hears about it. And Jerusalem decides that they want to send Barnabas to Antioch. Barnabas, one of their trusted guys, a godly man who's calm, and he has a good heart for the people, and so they send him up. And so he comes up there, and he sees, man, look at the grace of God that's going on here. This is amazing. And it says that with a steadfast heart, a steadfast purpose, what that means is all of a sudden, and this is an interesting thing for Barnabas, he wasn't thinking about Jerusalem anymore. He's thinking, man, my heart's for this people. I'm just going to pour into them. And he begins to pour himself out. But there's an interesting omission here. It says that he was exhorting them and he was proclaiming. And we'll see in the next verse, he really wasn't teaching. And so he goes, wait, there's something missing here. I'm going to go to Tarsus and get Paul. And when we look at the verb in the Greek of his action, it wasn't a random act. When Barnabas goes to Tarsus, it says he went specifically in a laser focus to look for this one person and take him with purpose and bring him back. That sounds like calling. And so it wasn't just he went to Tarsus and looked around. It was, for this purpose I am going to snatch and take and do this thing and bring it here. And so he does that. And the thing I like about that is that this is the tipping point for Paul. He's been there for a time. Time has passed on quite a few times since he left for Tarsus. And so in that time of quietness, so we don't hear from Paul at all, we actually see a little bit different spirit because first he submits to Barnabas. He doesn't have to come over to Antioch. He might say, well, you know, Barnabas, we got all these people being baptized in Sicilia and in Tarsus and in all these things. You know, I, I can't leave my ministry for Tarsus. You don't see that. What you see is a humble guy who basically accepts the bit and he goes to Antioch. Let's see what happens there after they get there. So verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, time passes on. For a whole year, they met with the church. Did you hear that? Paul's not alone. They met with the church. They taught a great many people. And, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And you know, sometimes I've seen it in Bibles where it has little parentheses or a footnote that says, well, Christians mean little Christ, and you know, that's so demeaning. Actually, when you look at this in the format of being called something, in Roman culture, when you were under somebody's house like, like Caesar, then his name was on your house like Caesarea. And if you were under this other guy like Justice, then you were Justinian. And so what I want you guys to see here is that taking on this name here has two big pieces, points of significance. 
The first one is this. It literally meant that they were under the house of Christ. This is Christ's household. So that's a little more than just being a little Christ. It was about a people. It wasn't about a person. And that's significant. The second piece of significance there is, why didn't they call them Christians back in Jerusalem? And the issue there was, in Antioch, there were more Gentiles coming to Christ. And in Jerusalem, the Christians were just known as Nazarenes. You know, they followed that Jesus of Nazareth. We're going to follow his teaching. And there were hundreds of these different pieces of Judaism that followed these different teachers. And so really, they were called followers of the way. You know, we see that in Acts. But they were all Hebrews. These were guys that were already, they already knew the law. The interesting distinction in Antioch is there's a shift to where not just Jews anymore, but also Gentiles. And so they weren't really followers of the way. And all of a sudden, they're like, we're under the house of God. And there were a number of these guys, you see it all through Acts, when, he, when Paul goes to the synagogue, which he usually does when he first goes into a city. There were really three types of people. There were people that heard the word gladly. There were people that disputed with him. And then there were guys outside the door they called God-fearers. Those were Gentiles who were sitting at the windows of the synagogue listening, but they couldn't go through the door for reasons we won't mention here. That's for a guy's retreat. And so that's why, that's why that is significant. This idea of Christians wasn't just a label on a person. It was describing a whole people, and it was describing the bride as they moved through. So time marches on. And Paul here comes into an admission. I need these people. He's in the house. And this admission of not being alone and of following pulls him into submission. And if there's any crux or turning point in this whole message, it's right here. Because this is where Paul actually begins to submit. And all of the submission was within a community. And it was under this house of Christ. It was under his crest. It was under his sign, his banner. And all of this started to change the way Paul works. Let's look at uh, verse 27. And we're still in chapter 11. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and he foretold by the Spirit that there would be a famine. And so the disciples determined that everybody, according to their ability, should send relief to the brothers in Judea. And they did so. So this is a, just a function of the church. At cross point, we see this almost as a deaconing function where we're taking care of people and it's ministry to the body. But see, that's not, what, that's not all what happened here. See, Paul was there over a year. How did they get this relief to Jerusalem? By the hand of Barnabas and Paul. You guys hear that? So now Paul is returning to Jerusalem, not as a crazy guy out of Arabia with an army chasing him, but he's coming sent by a church, coming in low with relief, approaching the elders. 
And the reason I'm coming in low refers back to an Acts 4 passage. When they're talking about the body of Christ in Jerusalem, when offerings were brought, what happened? They were laid at the apostles' feet. You see that? Paul brings relief, an offering, a resource to Jerusalem. And he lays it at the apostles' feet. Submission. He finally submits to the leadership in Jerusalem. I'm going to go off-road a little bit here and say some things that are implicit. It's at this time I actually think the elders say to Paul, we don't hear your mom calling you anymore. You're free to move about the country. Because immediately after, we see a shift in his interaction within the church and what happens. And so as they go back, again, time marches on. One of the interesting things about this travel, by the way, as we look through the scripture, and we won't read all of those for time's sake, but as you read it, you'll see this. As they go town to town, you know, they weren't jumping on Southwest Airlines and flying from Damascus down to Jerusalem or Antioch. They were walking. And they would stop in house churches all along the way. And they would tell what God was doing in Antioch. And you know what all those house churches did? They worshiped and glorified God. You see, so there, there's a circulation that goes on. And all of that is pulling Paul further into this idea of submission. I am a part of something bigger than me. And Barnabas was the one showing that to him. And the, also the interesting thing is, as we see later, Barnabas becomes a teacher. He went to go get Paul to teach before, but we see Barnabas learn from Paul. And so it wasn't a one-way street. They were informing each other, and the submission actually went both ways under this idea that we're under the Holy Spirit. So now they get ready to leave, and they go back to Antioch. And we're going to skip to our next section. And this is uh, verses chapter 25... I'm sorry, chapter 12, 25 through 13, 3. So Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem where they had completed their service. Yeah, I love that. There was a completion. There wasn't chaos. All of a sudden, Paul's acting in ministry and there's completion and there's fullness. He's not running anymore. He's just returning. And they completed their service. bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Verse 1 of chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius the Cyrene, Manan, the member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And a little sideline and footnote here. The reason why these guys amazed me is they were so different. See, the, guy, the reason they call Simon Niger is that that's the Latin word for black. He was just a black African. The guy from Cyrene, who we call a white African, he was from North Africa near Egypt, and they were very light-skinned. We've got Menaean who grew up with Herod. He went to school. He was his frat buddy with Herod. And then we've got Barnabas and Paul, and those guys are leading the church? I mean, it seems like a ragtag bunch, but it's amazing to see that in all of those differences, these guys were unified. And all, I'm sure they were all differently gifted. And they come from different places. 
And yet they're all in unity working this thing together. And we see these guys together. And here's what happens next. As you look at verse 2 or 3, and we'll read it in a minute. They come back in from this information from Jerusalem. Now remember the implicit idea. And what I mean by that is between the lines. Is that the elders have freed Paul out. And they come back and they're praying and fasting. In service to God. In worship to God. And the Holy Spirit speaks to them and says, set apart Paul and Barnabas for my work. And that is where everything changes. You see, it wasn't until Paul submitted that this happens. And it, was it the church that called Paul and Barnabas? It was the Holy Spirit in community and in unity and all of them were in agreement, and they're saying, that's what we're going to do. And that is a significant difference from those first days in Damascus. Because now Paul is acting in plurality, not a singularity. And the other thing is, is it set apart Paul for my service? Set apart Paul and Barnabas. From this time on, Paul never walks alone. When he sent out the normal way, did you guys hear this? Not average. When he sent out the normal, biblical, scriptural way, it's not alone. He sent out at least two by two. We look back to Luke 9 and 10. When he sent out those guys to go to the villages ahead of him, he sent them out one by one. No. He sent them out in twos. Jesus taught you don't walk alone. You don't go this alone. And sometimes guys like me think, I can do whatever do I want. But when we come under submission, all of a sudden that changes. Because now it's something that's founded in community and the things that we're doing. So let's look at verse 2 and 3. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart Paul and Barnabas for my work. I've called them. And then after more praying and fasting, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. Now, this sounds like a very short thing. And I'm going to suggest you a little different. I don't think it was like boom, boom, and they're gone and they kicked them out the door. Again, time passes on. And the reason I'm saying that is because there's a big difference between how they're being sent and how the church should send. And some of it, again, comes down to this idea of average and normal. Because what we see in this situation is that something radical has changed in Paul's pose. And then in response to that, the church responds and the Holy Spirit comes down and everything changes. Now Paul enters into a submission that results in commission of being sent out. And so now he gets everything he wanted all the way back in those first days of Jerusalem. He wanted to go back to those guys and tell them, hey, I'm Paul, this guy, and I'm going to save the world before bedtime. And they said, I think I hear your mom calling you. And now he is exactly in that place, not by his design. But hear this, by Christ's redemptive work in him through the church, not alone. 
You see, Christ didn't meet him on the road, and he did get laid out flat. And there was redemptive purpose, and Paul does get saved, and I don't want you to hear anything different. But what I want you to hear is, then it didn't stop there. It continued to grow up until this point, and that redemptive thread was present in every one of those pieces. It's an unbroken chain as he moves on. And so commission occurs, but then a responsibility of the church occurs at the same time. Because, again, like from my former example, we don't want to delegate our sending and just forget about those guys over there. That's what I mean. There's a connectedness. There's something that's going on all the time. It's something that's running in the background. And Crosspoint has been placed at a crossroads where I think there's going to be a lot of sending going on here. And the question is, how are we going to send? And what is our responsibility in that? And one of the ways to look at it is this. And I'm going to do a small word study for you. And I don't want to get too detailed. But it's the difference between the word mission and apostolic. First, mission is a Latin word. And apostolic is a Greek word. You don't see the word mission in the New Testament. I want you guys to, to hear that. You don't see the word missio in the text. You do see apostello. So that's there. And the reason I'm giving you a significant difference in that is that when you look in the, the origins of the word mission... It does go back to the Latin, and the Romans were very military, and it was, re- it was referred to an act of sending. And it's this idea of an army or a gift or a person going out on an expedition. It was the sending away. Now, hear me. That is part of the story. But I'm even challenging the use of the word mission. And the reason why I think we use it so much is something that happened probably about 80 years ago when we start to see charismatic emerge in the Christian culture in America. And they actually kind of kidnapped two words from us, prophet and apostle, and they so changed the definition that we're afraid to use it. But we can't not use it. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 say this. And he, that's Jesus, Jesus gives... Or gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain this unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, listen, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And here, completion there. We have these four things, sorry, five. We have apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher who were given as a leadership gift in the church for the purpose of raising up the church to a completion and a maturity and a fullness in Christ. And it goes on to say this, 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every word or wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather this, speaking in the truth and love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Not the man, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint which is equipped. And hear the word equipped again. 
when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So the purpose of those five giftings is so that we can go from a childlike faith and expression of church into a mature one in unity, building things up through equipping. And you know, we don't mind saying evangelism or shepherd or teacher and sometimes even prophet, but boy, oh, you're not an apostle. That's only those 12 guys who were with Jesus. Or apostle, well, that means you can, no, it doesn't mean any of that. The word in Greek means something completely different. Let's look back at that word study. And in Greek, when we dig into this, first of all, the, the word is almost exactly from the Greek. It's apostole. That's how they say it in Greek. So we have apostle. And that's actually two words. Greek has a lot of things where you have a prefix and you have a verb or a root. And so here you have apo, and you also have stello. Now, apo means a separation. So anytime you see apo in front of a verb, it takes that root and it adds this idea of separation or being set apart. And when we look at the verb stello, that's a preparing or an equipping. And so literally, when they're talking about this idea of sending Paul and Barnabas in this apostolic work, it has two sides of the coin. The first side is, we're going to equip and prepare. We're going to set you aside to equip and prepare you. We're not going to send you away unequipped and unresourced. We're going to send you well, equipped and prepared and joyful and worshipful, and you're giving glory as you go. And that's exactly how these guys left. We can't do it without that. Then the other side of the coin is, as the apostles are going, their role in the same way is to equip the others. And it says in other places in Scripture that they're the ones that go where there's no foundation and they start this thing. And here's the interesting thing. They raise it up and there's no teachers or shepherds or evangelists there, but they actually raise those guys up. There are no deacons or elders there, but they raise those guys up, Right? That's what the goal is, to bring from childhood to maturity in the fullness of Christ, the church to its full expression. And so that's why, as you hear me speak from now on, I might refer to mission as maybe a work thing, but that's not the calling. It's not even for me a missionary calling. It's an apostolic calling in the gift of apostleship. And that's very important because mission only gets to the doing and not to the being in Christ. In the apostolos, you're connected to the church through that equipping and that set-apartness. In the mission, you're just sent, and we just sent that group out there, and that's it. The other side of that is this. I have often winced at somebody saying, oh, the missionary's coming home. And I want to say to you, I don't buy that because the field is here too. We have a responsibility here. There's, there's darkness here. I've seen two specific things in, in this area in Hunt County that have impacted my heart. The first one is, and a little bit of confession here, when we moved into Western Circle over there and I found out that my kids were going to Travis, I was like, oh, Travis? I was looking at these other two better schools over here in nicer neighborhoods. 
But the Spirit really set on me, and I'll tell you why. As we began to go, as we were going through Travis, and as Pam was helping in the library, and as I sat at parents' lunch day with the kids, with all of my kids, I was up there for like two hours, one after the other. You know, my knees were way up here. But here's what happened, guys. Again, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, that's our mission field. There's darkness there. There's a young man there who you can see that he wants to be a boy, but his life is so hard that he has this mask, and he creates chaos wherever he goes. So in North Greenville, that was a part of our mission, and we're a part of this church, and I won't pull out the math to show you that then that is the mission of our church. It's all connected. The other thing, and this is a little more from, and I shared this with Brad when I first got here, for some reason, I've had a heart for Quinlan. I was back here visiting two years ago, and I, I love going to the used bookstore up here in Wesley, and I was coming back to where we were staying, and I see a man on the side of the road, and every once in a while, I just, I'm supposed to pick him up. And so I picked the guy up. It's an older guy. He's older than me. And he goes, where are you going? I said, well, where are you going? And he goes, well, I'm going to Quinlan. And I said, I'm heading that way. I, I wasn't. I kind of lied a little bit. I was actually heading towards the church, but obviously Quinlan is a piece further down the road. And he goes, well, where are you turning here? I said, no, I don't mind taking you. And so I took him all the way down to the Walmart in Quinlan. And we had a discussion, and I shared with him. And when I let him off, something happened there where for some reason, from that day until now, I know that God has a work in Quinlan. See, that's how the people in the body speak in the church. Where is your dark place? Where is your place to proclaim? Because this church does equip for that thing. Our equipping is in mobile worship. And as Ben takes you guys out there on that Wednesday before mobile worship, and we're impacting a dark area, that's actually not just ministry. It's an equipping of you for your dark place. And that's what it means to have that apostolic work working in the church. For some reason, we think missions, and you got to get on an airplane and have a passport. You guys have the nations here without packing your suitcase. We had two small groups meeting at the park on Webb Avenue, and we're all fellowshipping. But hear me, guys. We were kind of all, we circled the wagons. You know what that means? You've got all the chairs in a circle. We're facing each other. Well, how does that look from the outside? Anyone from the outside sees our backs, backsides, Right? But an interesting thing occurred because Jordan, Pam, and, well, actually, it was Jordy and Renee, they saw a woman sitting on a bench that was covered. And they think, oh, a covered woman. She, she might speak Arabic. Now, unfortunately, they didn't say, oh, let's go talk to her. They said, let's go get Pam who speaks Arabic. So they go get Pam, and they take her, sound familiar, over to this woman, and they finally get an engaging conversation. And Pam has had speaks with that woman from that point on. There's a relationship there. And we found out needs. There are Muslim families in Greenville. Hint, go down to the townhouses on Webb Avenue. The nations are here too. And so as we grow in that maturity of that calling of what apostello means, it doesn't just mean getting on a plane. It means the equipping to go out and get something started there that didn't exist before. And it's tied to the church. It's not separate. It's not this sending. 
And guys, this is exactly why I have the description of the sermon, no deposit, no return. Because the church will never see us again. There was no deposit in us. There was no preparing. There was just a sending or an unsending. And so there's no return. And I remember as a kid picking up those bottles back in the day. You know, to get that candy bar down at the bottle shop, we'd go collect bottles and we turn them in. But I remember as we sifted through, there were bottles that were no deposit, no return. And you know what we did with those? We threw them against the creek bank and broke them. Sakes alive. Guys, that's what we have been doing to people that were sitting overseas. They weren't returnable bottles. There was no deposit. And so my covenant with you is this. In our family and in the people that we lead, we want them to have a deposit so they return here. And that is the responsibility of the church. This is your responsibility as a people to deposit. And then our responsibility is to return. And we see that in Paul as we look to this last section. Time marches on. We're going to actually turn all the way to Acts 15. And we're going to look ahead of what happens as a result of their ministry and how Paul has changed. And first, just right before that, okay, uh, sorry, here's the setting. They already go out on their first journey, and they do have a lot of success, by the way. So they go out through these towns, and cool things happen. And they're up and down and through and all through this area of Asia Minor. And they decide to come back to Antioch. And it says this. In verse 22 of chapter 14, they strengthened the souls of the disciples that they were with encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying through many tribulations will enter the kingdom of God. And then they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord to whom they believed. So before they left those churches in Asia Minor, they set leadership in place. And then they passed through that whole region doing those things and they return to Antioch in verse 27. And when they arrived, they gathered the church together. Do you hear that? Again, when they come back, they gather everyone together. Not a singularity, but in the church together to hear these things. And they talked about how God opened the doors to the Gentiles, and they declared all the things they did, and they remained, I love this, no little time with them. And you know what? This is what I wish my time would have been this time. And this is my hope of what our time will be next time. That when we come back from our next journey, that we will spend no little time here. And that is resulting in worship and those things. And actually, as, as we go through 15, I'm just going to story this instead of reading it through. Let me tell you what happened. A situation happens at Antioch that points to Paul's maturity. Because some guys from Jerusalem come down, and they start throwing down some things in Antioch that aren't true. They're saying the Gentiles have to do things that they don't need to do. And they get into a big fight. And they start to wrestle. And they finally said, well, wait a minute. No, we're going to take this back to Jerusalem. And that's what's interesting. Paul and Barnabas take it to the authority. 
they don't try to exert it themselves. So they go back to the source and they present to these elders. And it's interesting that those elders in Jerusalem said, oh, those guys are not of us. There is no issue here. We're going to send a letter back with you with these two godly men. One of them is Silas, you know, who joins Paul later on. And you can see the Holy Spirit working through that. But as Paul comes back, he doesn't argue with the elders. He's presenting. And he's saying, we need help with the problem. And when we hit those bumps on the road, as all of us do, that's a good thing to do. They have a transparent accountability here with the elders. That's important. And there are times when I haven't been too transparent. One of the reasons my stuff was in the street this fall is because back in April, Ben writes me and says, what's up? And I don't reply to him. That is not very transparent. That's as clear as mud. And so Paul develops a sense of transparent accountability with Barnabas as they go and they do this. And the last thing that comes, and you can tell that Paul comes into his fullness, is that he throws down with Peter. He has to oppose Peter, the Peter, the the rock of which all things are broken. Peter, the mighty. And all of a sudden, after Paul and Peter go before those elders for the Gentile cause, and they win. And then they're back in Antioch, and Paul sees Peter acting a little weird, and he won't even sit with the Gentiles. Paul, and this is crazy, sorry, Ben, he corrects Peter. It's okay to say something to the elders if you think they're wrong. That's transparency. It doesn't say don't question Peter. It says, with respect and humility and truth, question to get an answer. It doesn't say, and guys, this does come out of a sermon from, from December. It doesn't say on the way home, badmouth the pastor. Actually, it says on Monday morning, go to Starbucks with Ben or Brad or Steve or Scott or whomever was speaking, I guess tomorrow or me. You see, what, we're, what you're seeing here in Paul is the fullness of his leadership. And from the point, at this point on, he has everything he needs to fulfill what God's called him to do. Through his admission of a need, through his submission to the elders, and through the Holy Spirit commission of his ministry, his apostolic ministry, that is equipping and sending and going out. And that's the thing that's been on our heart, and it's actually been our story. I've really paralleled this this year with these men and with this people here. And that's why we're so grateful for that gift. Because, you know, as we go out on our second journey, like this next one, we'll see that these things continue to grow and expand for Paul. And not only does he not travel alone or in twos, he starts traveling in groups. And he starts traveling in community And all of a sudden, we see things happen that have never happened before in the church. All these firsts that go on. The first convert in Europe. The first this. The first that. And we see those things happen in his ministry because of submission. Let's pray before we take the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for what you've given us here. And the idea of sending and what you've given to Pam and I 
as a church and the blessings that you give us through as, as we walk obediently and as we humble ourselves before you. Prepare our hearts for this expression of who you are in our lives as we go. Amen. Speaking of humility in Philippians 2, Paul says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, here Trinity, here that perfect community, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, coming in low, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, hearing sent. Even death on a cross. Therefore, God, here's the result of this beautiful, perfect sending in humility. God highly exalted him, and he bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And when they had given thanks, Jesus broke and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took a cup after saying, This, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, and as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you do this, you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, as we take up an offering now as worship, I pray that we would do so in the spirit of this sermon, in, the, in light of what we've heard, uh, that we would, we would be coming in low as we think about giving and participating in what you're doing. And that we would um, continue to be consistent by your grace and trusting you with what this is when we offer back to you. That we trust you and in you and in Christ and his righteousness as we worship you through giving. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. When I drove up here this morning and it was snowing, of course, after all the kids yelling at me this morning, Dad, it's snowing, Dad, it's snowing. You know, most guys would think driving up here, man, what beautiful God's creation when it's snowing here in Texas, and this is great, and I'll admit that this was a distracting thought at the beginning of the sermon, that all I could think of is, which elder said it'll be a cold time in Hunt County when speaking up here? <laughs> <laughs> um, and the last thing I'd like to share is, uh, we, we have an invitation that we'd like to extend to you. Um, with our kids, because we always don't have a church around us to testify to them to their salvation, uh, we've created this idea with, of a baptism book that has their testimony that you heard here. That, at the end of the video, we invited you to, to write a note for Sam and put it in the book, and that's in the lobby. And so, please, as, as you guys go, I want you to know that that has been a testimony to the two of the girls here, that they're saying, well, gosh, was that real back then? And it's opened up and, and has read those notes. And so uh, please uh, soberly approach that as the body and please join us in, in the celebration of this baptism by just giving a short testimony, a few lines to him in that book. So thanks and, and go in peace.